Hello, Australia. This is episode two of the Layback Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, I sat down with Neil Monteith in the Blue Mountains. We actually recorded this episode in a fallout bunker underneath his house. The podcast was also filmed, and you can find it on YouTube or thelayback.com. When we recorded this episode, extensive bans on climbing in the Grampians were rumoured, but had yet to be announced. Neil touches on these access issues in the episode, but mostly we get into the earlier period of his climbing life. Neil has been climbing for 27 years now and is one of Australia's most prolific climbers and route developers. He's developed more than a thousand new pitches of climbing in Australia. I was eager to interview Neil and kind of get an understanding of where his drive for discovering and developing new crags comes from. We get into his early climbing in Queensland in the 90s, his forays in alpine climbing, and Neil gives us a bit of his views on the Australian climbing culture, having lived across many of the states on the East Coast. Neil describes himself as an eternal optimist, and his enthusiasm for climbing is contagious. Enough from me, let's get into it. You've been climbing for 27 years now? 1993 was when I went for my first proper rock climb, yeah. I guess. Yeah, with with uh, like, well, yeah, real ropes and real harnesses and such things. It, where was that? So the first time I went proper rock climbing was as part of a school camp. So year 10 at school and it was a place called Ironbark, which was this sort of weird camp thing our school did where for... Oh, I think it was like a term at school and it was many, many weeks. You went to this sort of farm place and you lived in the bush and you cooked your own food and literally cleaned your own toilets with sawdust and had cold showers and there was no actual lessons. It was sort of like a live as a farmer in the bush sort of thing. And part of that, they had a bit of an outdoor education program. And really oddly, the first place that they took us, which is sort of a bit of a trial by fire, is Frog Buttress. Like that was my first ever rock climbing experience. So I just thought... Rock climbing was hand jamming because like the first route they put us on was some sort of grade 15 hand crack and we were all told to climb up a pure splitter hand crack. I think it was um, shit heap. I think it's 14, but it is just a pure splitter crack. Like there's no face holds, there's no slab moves. It's just you climb a straight up crack. And so that's what I thought. Like we did two days of that was the easiest thing we did and all these sort of slightly harder things. And that's what I thought rock climbing was, climbing splitter cracks. Yeah. And that just totally sparked that little fire in my brain for rock climbing and I immediately liked it. I'm not quite sure what it was that was immediately attractive, but it really was immediate. And it was a bunch of friends at that same Ironbark class. It were all of us, it was like four or five of us were just mm. instantly um, amazed by it. But of course, as soon as we left that situation, we didn't own any climbing gear. And even at that same camp, we went and got some old ropes and we sort of tied ropes around our waist and we climbed up the outside of the building and we ab abseiled in inverted commas off the top by sort of hand over handing down things or running it around our waist and sort of strangling ourselves. And then we came back from that camp and we still wanted to go rock climbing, but I had no, there was no reference point for, for how to rock climb. And, mm. and so I, didn't know it. I hadn't met any real rock climbers and I hadn't 
been, I didn't even know, apart from Frog Buttress, I didn't know of any other Rockland places. And so I went straight to the school library, the convenient, you know, place of all wisdom, and then looked up rock climbing, and there was only one book in the whole of the, you know, the school's library, and that was Royal Robin's Basic Rock Craft, which is like a 1960s publication. So remember, this is 1993 for me. And so how, how did that end up in the book? Well, that's the only the book. Library. They had one book, in, yeah. which is obviously at some point it was a book. Oh, no, they also had Classic Climbs of Australia by Joe Friend, which I've still got upstairs because I stole both of these books from the library. Um, <laughs> never return. <laughs> Maybe they've ended the climbing, rock climbing careers of uh, St. Peter's students for the next uh, 10 years until you did it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, because I did go to that, the, that same, I, the, same. the same school. I'm kind of like being a bit coy about that. Very in, weirdly in coincidentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> weirdly coincidentally. Don't know each other at all, but did exactly the same school. And, yeah. 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 And And so that book... So Royal Robin's Basic Rock Craft, which was this sort of iconic book about how to rock climb, but it was written in the 1960s. And it's all about piton craft and aid climbing and like waste belays. And abs- and that was, so I had no other reference. That was the book I thought what rock climbing was. So I then went, so we were 15 years old and we just got my dad's tow rope, but the tow rope was really short. It was like 15 meters long. And so... <laughs> I decided, well, that's not really long enough to do much. I can make some harnesses and weird, well, not really harnesses. I could, that's sort of like a, an anchor to set up a top rope, but I need an actual rope. And, and this is a, you know, a pretty hilariously stupid story. So what we did have at our house was a long length of electrical cord, like extension cord. And it was great. It was like, a, I don't know, 20 meters long piece of inverted commas rope. I mean, like, I, I, I'm sure it doesn't really hold. I, I, in retrospect, I'm thinking about... A piece of copper inside a piece uh, yeah, of what, rubber. What, what kind of like what, what uh, kilonewton rating I, would that? I even have, have no idea, but that's what we used as a rope. So we went around Brisbane, and we still didn't really know particularly of Kangaroo Point, and we found these like weird quarries and bits of rock, kind of terrifying. And like I've been back to some of these places, and they actually haven't got smaller as I've got older. I'm like, how did we not kill ourselves? Like, because we would weight these things, and like mm. we would sort of scramble up something, trundling loose blocks and stuff, and then lower off we'd literally just wind the rope around our stomachs like three or four times and when they'd low off you'd just get strangled like the blade would just be <laughs> just losing breath and you'd try to get them to the ground as fast as possible and we used i mean we literally used tent pegs and and you know in the world rock after there must have been something about using nuts and i did the whole drilling the nuts out and put the little bits of rope through that and we but we only did that for like a couple of months and you know we didn't die and then I was at school one day and we were, it was the, the swimming lessons or something. And I was sent down to the shed at the back of the pool to get the swimming equipment, the kickboards or something. And as I'm down in this dusty old room, I look and the back of the room, there is a whole bunch of really, really old dusty climbing ropes and old harnesses, like Willens harnesses, sort of 1970s era harnesses. And they're all just covered in dust. They clearly have not been used in in decades. And I was like, oh my god, gold mine! Like we were actually like there was like a proper rope there and a proper harness and stuff. And so we took those ropes out of. I borrowed those ropes, and we actually, funnily enough, did actually return those ropes six months later. Absolutely trashed. Um, but they were sort of the first proper rock climbing rope. Very shortly after that, I then went to try and buy a rope, and that was a. A experience which was again my only reference was Royal Rock after I had knew no real climbers, mm. and so I went to K two base camp and went up to the uh, I'm th- I'm pretty sure it was Darren Carter who was a bit of a a uh, 
you know, a guy in the, in the scene in that, that era. He sort of ran the shop there and he was a, you know, fairly famous, did a whole bunch of new routes. But I went up to him and, and said to him, I, wished, I want to buy my first climbing rope, but I can't afford one of those new fancy Kermantle ropes. So I'd only want to buy a twisted rope. Because that's what Royal Robin's basic rock craft told me. Like, that there were two sorts of ropes. And if you're really fancy and top of the game, you had a Kermantle rope. But really, when you're starting out, go the, you know, the twisted hemp rope. It'll be fine. And he just was like, had this shocked expression on his face because, you know, I was 15 years old, a little kid. I mean, I see 15-year-olds now and I am, like, terrified when I see how small and and little, like, that, how much they're little kids. And I think, geez, I was somehow just wandering around very much without any mentors at all trying to teach myself rock climbing in a very broad sense. So what was what was the climbing scene like in I guess it was Brisbane at that yeah. point in time, kinda of like mid nineties. There wasn't a gym yeah. at that point, was it? There no, was so, no like climbing gym in Brisbane. So I would probably be almost like what you'd say would be the last generation of the pre gym climbers in, in Australia. And you know, Brisbane it's always famous for being 10 years behind the rest of Australia. And, you know, there were definitely gyms in other parts of Australia and climbing. There was even, you know, I think there was a climbing competition, Escalade on plastic holds in sort of 1989 or 1990. Mm. But Brisbane didn't have that kind of scene. In the, in the obviously, 60s, 70s, 80s, Frog mm. Buttress was king and there was a mm. real big, hard, you know, it was a famous people came to Frog Buttress to do, you know, some of the hardest routes in Australia and there was a lot of strong climbers around. Um, and those climbers kind of, disappeared in the end of the 80s. They all sort of moved into the Arapoli scene. There were people like Paul Hoskins and stuff like that. And it was a moment in Queensland where there was nothing happening. There wasn't really new routes. Queensland definitely had a, a very sort of traditional background, a lot of trad. I mean, the only sport routes that really existed were at Kangaroo Point, um, which they were pretty loosely termed sport routes. It was sort of like four carrot bolts, no lower offs, mm. you know, sort of 18-metre wall, generally pretty sketchy first bolts high up and so Darren Carter was one of the sort of people that started sort of bolting I guess more consumer stuff more in the easier grades mm. um and that's sort of the scene I slipped into um and it was kind of weird like really from very early on for some reason I liked doing first ascents and like within the first year I was like wrapping down terrible parts of Kangaroo Point, trundling <laughs> blocks off and, and hammering in bad bolts. And, but I don't like, it was, I think it was something to do with that. I didn't have, it was my school friends and I, mm. and we didn't have any mentors. And it was like doing new routes was just like learning to climb anyway. Like everything we did mm. was like, we were making it up. So new routes was just making it up to a more higher degree. Like mm. we were teaching ourselves how to play or how to put in trad gear or, and putting a how to put a bolt in was just one more skill on top of how to place trad or whatever. And so it was just, I don't know, like it was just. There wasn't this delineation that we have now ab- between disciplines. No, or, absolutely not. Know. But it, but it it's really weirdly comes down to, um, and I look at it now, there was a an issue of Rock Magazine that came mm. out around then. It may have even been in 1991 or 92 because they came out so rarely that, you know, like that you read these magazines from front to back a million times and sitting and I just, just read them on my lap at, at, at school in the back, back at the class instead of doing French or something. And, uh, mm. and there was an article in that magazine from Mike Law about bolting. And because it was a mag- an article I would have read 50 times because I had nothing else to read, that article 
was imprinted into my mind. And I wonder if I had started climbing one year earlier, one year later, and hadn't had that issue was magazine that I looked at, would I actually have, you know, understood bolting and been, you know, so obsessed with doing new routes and that kind of Michael-esque bolting mm. shenanigans that that article was all about. Like, it's really weird. It would only take one little, you know, slip either way and might have changed everything. Yeah. It seems like these adventurous styles of, of going out on, like, expedition-style things were very... Um, they're a part of your climbing from very, very early on. You organised some kind of, um, like, two-week expedition up to North Queensland at one point to that. Um, and I'm probably not even cr- pronouncing this correctly, but Mount Peter... Peter Boy? Bott. Bott. Peter Bott, yeah. right? So... Yeah. So my climbing background comes a lot from my parents, which mm. is which I didn't sort of explain earlier. But so my mum was a rock climber in the 1950s, as much as you were a rock climber in the 1950s. So mm. when you were a rock climber in the 50s, you were a bushwalker who climbed rocks with very rudimentary gear. And so my mum hung out with some of these real early luminaries of Ron Coxes and stuff, people who... Mm whacked wooden chocks up the east face of Crookneck and mm. abseiled off, you know, Barney and, and lots and lots of big mountain-y kind of routes that, that – and Queensland is full of these, like really actually – like if Queensland was, you know, 2,000 kilometres south and another 2,000 metres high in altitude, it would have proper mountaineering. Like the mountains mm. are big and pointy and have nasty big cliffs on them and are loose and chossy. I mean, there's like a sort of an Iger north wall in Queensland. It's just covered in rainforest. Um <laughs> And and so that's sort of the background. And so as a kid, I was brought up bushwalking. And mm. so we bushwalked everywhere, um, went on, you know, hikes. We And we went to particularly obscure places because my, my parents are scientists. So we were always looking for new species. And my dad is an entomologist. Um, my mum is a geologist. And, and there's a really interesting parallels with what my dad does as an entomologist and what I do rock climbing, which is... He spends his life looking for new species and writing and recording those species and um, and I guess publishing things about them. And, and that's nothing that I've never really – it's only recently where I've really thought about the weird parallels with Dad goes on these sort of expeditions out into the rainforest and he goes to places – he's looking for places that other people haven't been to and he's looking under, you know – logs and and things like that looking for animals that other people have never seen before and if he finds this animal then he you know gives it a name generally and records it and writes it up Mm. and publishes it in a publication and then there's a long list and he you know he can show you the long list of all the things he's you know found and it's just some really weird parallels with doing new routes which is exactly the same where it's you know to be doing proper new routes and proper, you know, new crag development as opposed to new routes. And there is a bit of a difference there where, you know, some people will bolt a, a line at an established crag. You know, they go, oh, mm. there's a piece of blankness there or, you know, I could do a link up of that to that. And they sort mm. of, you know, it's, you know, it's something they just noticed because they were at the crag climbing other routes. And then there's people that will go bush bashing for days on end looking mm for the next crag or next location and are willing to go that extra mile and, and you'll suffer for it. And 99% of the time, well, not 99, but you know, the majority of time, it'll be one big disappointment. You're looking mm. at something in the distance that looks like it's 50 metres high and amazing and you get to it, it's five metres high. It's the case of the ever-shrinking cliff, the Grampians is full of it. Um, and so that that sort of bush walking and mm. definitely, you know, not walking on established tracks. Like, you know, mm. that was what my parents did. We went to places and we stumbled off into the bush and and looked for things and whatever it was. And so I guess that's just kind of how I was brought up. And Peter mm. Bott 
is up in North Queensland. I went there with my dad. So I think we were six, 16. And so dad was doing a, a, a trip up there. And so a friend of mine, Simon, my brother and I, we went up there. And Matt Peterbot is this amazing granite spire. It looks, I mean, it's not to the scale of the Lost Arrow Spire, but it's mm. this big granite spire in the middle of the jungle, like many, many hours walk from Cape Tribulation. Look, maybe it's more popular and maybe people walk there, but it was certainly thrashing through the jungle with no mark track for mm. a whole day and then making a camp next to a creek and and uh, then the next day thrashing up more jungle to the base of this big spire. And we had this, like, you know, it was, it was a classic, you know, 16-year-old's flawed vision of how we were going to get to the top of this. And and so we had this very rudimentary trad rack because in those days I think we owned maybe two cams and, like, you know, we used to keep the cams in a velvet pouch and they were only allowed out for specific specific climbs. Like, I did my first couple of years at Frog Buttress climbing with no cams. Everyone around me, all these older climbers who actually had money had cams, but, you know, I'd be doing infinity with five hexes that's all we had like i'd I'd be totally you know sketchy and scared but that's all we had and Mm. um and so we had sort of two cams and a few things and this spire is just consists of this holdless the rock up there is weird it's never going to be any climbing destination because it's just weirdly holdless it's rough kind of granite but kind of eternally damp because it's the queensland uh, north queensland and but it had this huge block leaning against the base of it where it was vertical and then the top mm. of it slabbed off. So I looked at it and I thought there's some way that maybe if you can climb up this stem up this big block that was about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten metres high, if I could stem up between that big block and the main wall to the top of it, I could then stand on the top of the thing, lean over and somehow jump onto the slab. That was my theory. And then I would be able to slab to the top, which would be, I don't know, 50 meters or more with no protection. We had this little power drill, but it wasn't a rotary hammer drill. It was some little tiny little home battery power drill. And there was almost no battery powered tools in that era anyway. And I remember we pulled it out and we, we test drilled it and it like it drilled for like one minute and then went flat and made not a dent. <laughs> so it was like, well, that was useless. Threw that away. And then um, we, climbed and so I decided to stem up this thing so it was wide enough that you couldn't chimney it you had to stem with your feet mm. wide so stem 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 and I get right to the top of this big thing and I've got one foot stemmed on the other side or both feet stemmed on one side and two hands on the other side sort of spread eagle across the thing and I'm like how am I going to transition and as I'm sitting there in this weird like space transitioning I kind of had this really weird feeling in my feet and I and it just like a, a really funny weird feeling like I was in the ocean or something and I yelled down to Simon, Simon, is this thing I'm stemming across moving? And he looked, holy shit, it's moving. And this thing that was, you know, eight, ten metres high moved. Like when I sat at the top of it and I pushed on it and we looked under it and realised this thing's like a balancing rock. It has no base on it and it's just perched on the side of this hundred metre cliff below us that we sort of scrambled around. And so then I'm just, I'm chimneying between the two things and I'm like, just frozen like there's no gear there's nothing to do and the and i lowered off by just flicking my rope over the top and i he belayed me on one side and i lowered off the other side and we lowered to the ground and and because we had lowered off now i had a rope at the top and we could pull it from the ground we could pull our rope and the thing just swayed like like a foot each way just we didn't like we 16 year olds were tempted to rip the thing off the like to pull the whole thing down but it was but it would have been like you know you're in a national park and it was a pretty major it would have been carnage galore so you're uh, 
you're living in Queensland and at some point, like, you moved down to Melbourne? Or... Yeah, so I did. I mean, look, I spent, you know, sort of four, four, three or four years after high school living in Queensland. And I was like, I was quite obs- quite obsessed about film and television as yeah. well as climbing. And in that sort of era, my friends from school all kind of dropped out of climbing pretty rapidly after leaving mm. school. So I actually lost the majority of the people I climbed with um, very rapidly. I gained a rack from this. That was the most amazing thing because each one of my friends had one or two cams mm. or a few beaners and each one gave up. Because there was, by the end of high school, I think there was like six of us, like there was mm. six or seven of us who were proper out there at Frog Buttress on the weekends climbing. Um, uh, and we just had this sort of single rack. We combined forces with everyone together. We had sort of something that you could climb with sort yeah. of and like one rope and things. But So I inherited all this stuff, which was really good, but I didn't inherit really anyone to climb with then. And that was, I guess it slowed me down, but I definitely did a lot of, I was still doing these sort of first ascents at Mount Gun Gun and the Glasshouse Mountains and things like that, but it was all with the hand drill. It was this painful exercise, like Tipragargan, like, oh, I'll make some sport routes in Tipragargan and get your hand drill, ding, ding, ding. And it was like 40 plus minutes to drill one bolt. And we're talking a short bolt. And whenever anyone says, oh, I don't understand why all your routes were so death and run out and, you know, in that era, and I'm like, it was no, like, great ethical statement you'd start you get three bolts into some like route that you'd you know you'd wrapped and decided it needed seven bolts and you get three bolts in and you would just go oh, i think i could just run it out from here like and you'd you know, get the rps out and go oh behind a loose block oh, that's kind of okay and because the idea i mean you could literally spend all day like you know if it takes 40 yeah. minutes to drill one bolt to drill six bolts you're going to be there all day and and i literally got like you know i've never had finger problems but when i was you know, 18, 19 years old, I had crippling, crippling, like, finger injuries, like, aching pain, like arthritis, and that was just from smashing, from a, hand you know, drilling. literally, I mean, hand drilling is, you just get, just the, to practice hand drilling, just get a hammer and smash it against a wall for, you know, 40 minutes, and, like, no wonder your wrist is destroyed, your fingers are destroyed, because that's all you're doing, like, smash, smash, smash. So, yeah, so, I did, a, like, a roots, but it was a trip to... Rapalies and the Grampians that sort of set in motion leaving Queensland. Like mm. I'd been, I'd done some <laughs> fairly fairly dodgy uh, little trips down to um to the Blue Mountains and Nowra mm. and um and uh, Sea Cliffs and Warren Bungles. I'd done a few sort of funny little trips, but I hadn't been to sort of the Mecca, which was you know Rapalies at that time. And I went there with Gareth Llewellyn. It was a couple of month trip and that just sort of sealed the fate. I mean, that was just such an amazing, like to be able to go to somewhere where you camp at one place and you just get up in the morning and go out and just pick off classics, 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 go back, you're spending zero money. You know, the the entire diet was, <clears throat> the morning was like wheat bix and banana and there was never any lunch, which is really interesting. I was listening to, to uh, Carrigan's, your, your uh, podcast of Carrigan and he was saying the thing like, don't eat for lunch. I'm like... I've never thought about it. Like he, he obviously has a much more scientific view on it, but I've like, it's so right. Like you just, I don't tend to eat lunch at all when I'm climbing. If you're properly climbing, you just go climbing all day long. But it's, and, in his case, it's a performance. Yeah, yeah. Focus, but, and in yeah. your case, it's just like, <laughs> I'm climbing, just, I'm too busy to eat. I was just eat. frothing, yeah, yeah. I was <laughs> yeah. like, climb, climb, climb. And then we used to have like, you know, Dolmio pasta or something, something that cost $2. And so, you know, your mm. budget for the day was $4 tops. That's what you spent on, on food. And that's the only expense. And you just you know, went climbing and that, that just sealed my fate. And I just looked for jobs, film and TV jobs. And yeah, I got this gig in Melbourne and, you know, pretty much packed up the life and went there. And that was just beginning of endless 
weekends at, at the Grampians in Arapolis pretty much, um, which was a whole decade of my life there. Um, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't when I, I was working there, you know, like I was, mm. I had a career in advertising, film and TV, um, working really, really hard. And, you know, it was, and, you know, but you'd finish work at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night on Friday. Mm. And then you'd get in the car and drive through the night to Rapalies and fall out of the car and rock climb all weekend and then get in that car and drive back and then do more stupid 14, 15 hour days all through the week. And yeah, I looked, it was fun. The place I worked, I guess, valued me as a, I don't know, like what, I don't know what you want to call it, um, like the, in my sort of creative ability, as being a, a particular person who attracted particular clients that I could quit and just come back again, including like a year. Like I could just go, I'm just leaving. And I think I quit there four or five times and I would always get a pay rise every time I came back. So instead of it being begging for my job back, it was the opposite. They were always, oh, come back, please come back. You know, we need you, um, you know, here's extra money. So so for you, you were like, okay, I'm going to quit. Yeah, I'm yeah, go I, climbing I, for six months. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you come back and you're going to pay me more. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what <laughs> happened every like time. sounds like the best deal <laughs> ever. So I did many, many, like I think I quit four or five times at least. And one um, of those was a big stint through the US, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, you just kind of like did that like epic road Yeah, trip, so that was like the first the... proper overseas. I mean, I'd been to Thailand climbing mm. before in the early 90s, but that was the first proper overseas trip and was... I had two really good friends in in that I'd climbed with like obsessively, which was um, uh, in in Melbourne, and and those two, we sort of got weirdly obsessed by aid climbing. Um, and in in retrospect, I'm just trying to think: were we practicing because we knew we were going to Yosemite, or was that a secondary? I can't actually remember. But we kind of aided lots of weird things and did lots of sort of strange sort of little missions around Melbourne and, and in the Grampians. And and then that was just a, a road trip. And we just went there with not a lot of money. We just bought mm. a really rubbish car in Boulder. And I'm effectively pretty much, I reckon if I was 10 years younger, I would be diagnosed as ADD. So I'm not a person who likes planning and I really enjoy, mm. like I enjoy climbing at a new crag every single day. Like that's my dream. If I could wake up and go to a new crag every single day. That's like my dream life. And that's what our American trip was. It was every single day we would wake up the three of us and we'd be like, okay, where are we going today? And we'd go climbing somewhere oh, around Boulder. Da, 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 da. And then we'd like that night, we'd be like, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? Okay, let's go climb the diamond. And you'd drive up in the Alpine stuff and blah, blah, blah. And then after that, you're like, what are you going to do now? Let's go bouldering. And so every single day we just switch genres from mm. proper mountaineering, you know, with, that was my first mountaineer I'd done up Mount Rainier and blistering cold. And then next day, literally the next day we're sport climbing at Smith Rocks. And then like, you know, a day after that, we we're like crack climbing in Squamish or something. And we just had this crazy trip where we, you know, we didn't, we didn't, we slept in a tent mm. the entire time. So it was six months where we never, you know, I think we had one night we spent in someone's house in Seattle, some person we'd met who'd invited us to his house because I think he had Vegemite. I distinctly remember sitting in his house with with a toaster and he had Vegemite for some reason. He wasn't Australian, but he had Vegemite. We sat and ate all his bread and all his Vegemite and then we're back on the road again. And But it was just an amazing trip of just ultimate dirtbaggery, like where... I, it was weeks between showers and, you know, just we looked like the scum of the earth. A lot of people come back from that kind of like first big trip in those formative years and, and it has a big impact on them um, and maybe changes 
the way they see themselves, the way they see Australia, even. Um, I mean, did did it have that kind of impact on you? Like, what what did you take away from it? What did I take away? I came back with extreme poverty. That's all. I came back with some ginormous debt where I totally mis- miscalculated my finances somehow. That was the first time I think I'd quit that my company in Melbourne, yeah. and so I hadn't. I didn't have the reassurance that they would want me back. Mm. And I was really in debt. And I remember flying back into Brisbane, even though I had been living in Melbourne for a couple of years. And uh, it was just a pretty much a big meltdown. Like I just remember going into a, like a nervous wreck there. It was like Millennium News was like the worst New Year's ever because it was like <laughs> reality suddenly said, so I'm no longer in America road tripping and having the greatest time ever. And it's all that's, it's ended. And uh, you had to go back to work. I had to go back to work eventually. But I did spend a couple of months bolting stuff up in Queensland. And that was like the sunburnt buttress was this multi-pitch thing I bolted at that era because I'd been sort of inspired in America by these multi-pitches. They were everywhere. Yeah. And multi-pitches is a weird thing. I mean, now we have these things called like Bunny Bucket Buttress and mm. Hotel California. There's these sort of like mainstream multi-pitches that are, you know, kind of reasonably safe and you can do them pretty quickly. and But they cover big terrain. That, that, mm. And that they kind of didn't really... They didn't really exist in Australia um, in the sense there was lots of stuff at Warren Bungles, but they were pretty big days, long yeah, days. Okay. You certainly weren't just flitting in and doing them in two hours and going home again. Um, and America had those kind of routes. I, I remember doing these like fun routes at like Red um, Red Rocks in Nevada mm. and even in Colorado. You'd be up on these things and you'd – and the difference were things like – they had things like bolt belays. Like it might be a trad route, but, mm. you know, all of Yosemite, like so much of Yosemite – you had bolt belays, which gave you the option to wrap off whenever. And it was a really weird thing I'd never seen in Australia. Oh, like the multi-pitches here have sort of escape routes down them effectively. And there was sort of more, and there was mixed climbing in America where since they weren't total death routes. Like if it Mm. was a, there was a scary run out section, there would be a bolt and it would be a good bolt. It'd be a sensible, not some rusting falling apart Mm. carrot from Eubank 1968. It would be a, Oh, a good bolt. And you clip it and you'd go on and you know, like, and there were lots of people doing these routes. And, and I sort of came back to Australia thinking, Oh, like there's got to be some, especially in Queensland where I'd gone up this, Tipper Gargan was sort of famous for these totally sketchy, but super easy graded routes. Like, you know, mm. oh, this would be a grade eight or this would be a grade nine, mm. but it would be actually more like a grade 16 or 17 and have very worthless gear and be terrifying. And and also not like wandered. Like, I mean, my mum used to tell me about how they climbed routes in those days and they didn't have gear. They had a rope. They had a couple of slings and maybe if they were lucky, they had one carabiner. So you would just try and get to the next ledge with a tree on it. I mean, the aim is like you're just going like when you don't have trad, it's a really weird thing. When you don't actually have wires and cams, a crack has is of no interest to you. Yeah. Like you don't need to follow a crack line yeah. if you don't have the gear to put in it. So those roots were put up in the 50s and early 60s. They just tried to get between trees. They tried to get between things they could sling effectively mm. because that's the only gear you could get. Um, and a crack was of actually not much interest. So a lot of those early generation routes on Tipper Gargan were these terrifying slab things that you tried to get gear and you couldn't, but that was fine because that's they were put up like that. They didn't have gear. And so, yeah, so I just sort of looked at it with, I guess, a different mindset and looked at it, like, where's the biggest part of this mountain, the longest, tallest, steepest part of the mountain, and can a route go down it? Um, and, you know, wrapped it down. And weirdly enough, I'd actually wrapped Sunburnt Buttress in the past, like, six five or six years before before i'd moved to melbourne but with my hand drill and adjust abandon it like i drilled a couple of anchors mm. 
had a totally mission down and bent. Like this is way too hard to do with a bunch of hand drills. And so then coming back from America, I managed to borrow, I think it was Gareth Llewellyn's drill, the first power drill I'd ever used. And I was like, oh my God, this is revolutionary. I can actually, you know, like drill yeah. these things. Because even in the Grampians, my mm. first you know year in the Grampians, I did all these routes, these sport routes that are popular sport routes. I drilled them all with a hand drill. Like, like you know, horrible experience. But Malcolm, who I, Matheson, who I climbed with a lot down there, he was a big hand driller and he, you know, him and I, ding, 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 ding. And, you know, the Grampians is much softer than, than the Glasshouse Mountain. So you can actually drill a hole there in 20 or 30 minutes. Mm. But, um, but the revolution of having a power drill and, and the sort of the new mindset of, oh, you can put bolt belays in mm. and, you know, and so, yeah, I did that sort of sunburnt buttress route up the front of it, which is sort of the, probably the first sort of consistent, sort of consumery, like, like so many, Roots, they age. At the time, it was very much a mm. super consumer route, but now has been superseded by roots vastly easier with you know three times as many bolts. Uh, so, like a lot of history, like things like Kangaroo Point was always considered the you know the soft sport climbing venue mm. of Queensland with its four bolts and eighteen meters. And the routes mm. that I would have considered when I started climbing as the super safe consumer routes, I go back to Kangaroo Point now. And they're like not repeated because they're considered the death routes because now there's these new routes that have seven bolts mm. in them. Mm. And it's really weird that things at times shift sort of in what, what people think of as danger and, and not and what you're sort of willing to do. You, you talked about um, coming back kind of like, it does sound like pretty close to like rock bottom in terms mm -hmm. of, of, yeah. of your, uh, your psych level. Mm -hmm. Um and I know that summer too. Summer in Queensland. Summer Sorry. in Queensland. So we, we, like yeah. it's pretty doesn't get more rock bottom than coming back. No. <laughs> New Year's. It's like a one million percent humidity, one thousand degrees, and and it really was a very dead period of Queensland. In that, like in '99, yeah. it was pre the discovery of Slider, pre discovery of Coolum, pre discovery of Pages or Nindery or anything. It was a dead period of you know like when I'd left. Brisbane in mm. whenever it was sort of 90, 97 and coming back in year 2000, not much had happened in that three years. It really hadn't, mm. it was the same really sort of, you know, yeah, backwards and it really kicked back into gear um, really with the, sort of the discovery of probably Slider um, really kicked in the modern generation of Queensland. What year would that have been? Yeah. I, I'm guessing it would have been 2000 or something, 2000, yeah, 2000. It must, must have been very close to when I came back. I remember because okay. Gareth discovered it and brought me up there and showed me these two lines he'd bolted up there. And I'm like, I don't understand how I didn't see them. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I've walked around this mountain multiple times looking for new crags. And like, that is like by far the best crag, you know, I think in the Glasshouse Mountains. And... That, that speaks to your personality though, that like you didn't look at those lines and like your immediate reaction wasn't, oh, those are amazing lines. Yeah. And maybe they were, but your immediate reaction was like, oh, I, what? I didn't find them. Like I was looking and I didn't I was looking so them. hard. Yeah. Like, he actually yeah. found the, you know, the popular, you know, now popular, mm mega classics of Tipperagh mm. and, and uh, high bolted some particularly obscure things that no one probably ever repeat. Well, you know, they get it repeated every five years or something. Okay. You went to Baffin Island in 2003 uh, and that was like a, another one of those big kind of expedition trips that we, we that I was kind of hinting at yep. earlier. Um, but, I, but let's kind of get to there, right? So you come back from the US, you don't have any money. Was that like, did you have an idea in that, at that point in time to go to Baffin Island? Was this like something you wanted to work towards? Or? I actually can't really 
look, I remember there was a book, mm. a book that was like classic climbs of the world or something, classic walls of the world. It was this big glossy, I've probably got it upstairs somewhere, but it's this sort of big hard covered book. And it was sort of had these rudimentary topo lines drawn on like some of the great mountains of the world. You know, there mm. was the Matterhorn, there was whatever, Everest, and then there was Baffin Island and it had Mount Asgard and Baffin Island. And for some reason that kind of stuck. I'm not sure why that one was definitively p- picked as something that I had interest in, but this friend of mine, Marcel, who I went to Baffin Island, both of us, like two years before we went to Baffin Island, really decided we wanted to go there. And mm. and we, what, you know, we've got to train, we've got to, you know, we've got to get ready for this thing, which is not like me at all. Like I'm very much just... I don't make plans until the night before and, you know, I just make it up as I go along. Like I'm not someone who generally looks at something Mm. well in advance, which is why I've never been a very good, like hard projecty kind of climber because I don't like to have this big goal. Like, oh, I want to climb that. It's going to take me three months. I've got to train all winter to do this route. No, no. Like at most I'm going to be thinking about maybe I'll do some. Well, the fact that you maybe I'll do some chin-ups. three months yeah, yeah. shows. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, oh, maybe I should do some chin-ups the night before I go and try this one route. Yeah. And if it takes me more than a day to do, I'm probably <laughs> unlikely to ever go back to it. That's that's about it, the normal extent. But, yeah. yeah, so it was something that for whatever reason, like really caught our – now, mine, it was probably a bit in the climbing media at the time. Yeah. There was definitely articles about Baffin Island. It was sort of the, the place to go. And um, it was a big thing. And I really focused, like, my life around preparing for that. And that was, mm. I mean, look, I did multiple trips to New Zealand, climbing Cooks and Tasmans and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And had a, you know, like I, a friend of mine, John O'Schmidt, who was sort of my mountaineering buddy, which we'd got in. He was a, a flatmate that I'd moved into. It wasn't anything to do with climbing. And I'd convinced him to take up climbing because he was a real machine at cardio, like just going. Like he, mm. you know, ride a bike. He just does not stop. Walk up a hill, does not stop. Put 50 kilo pack on his back. He's not going to slow down walking up that mm. hill. Like he was a natural machine. And I really saw that early on. And I convinced him to, so he'd never actually gone rock climbing. I'd convinced him to go in inverted commas, alpine climbing in Victoria. And there is this kind of cool scene in winter, which is climbing at places like um, Bogong and at Mount Buller. And there's waterfall ice forms there sporadically. (laughs) And it's sketchy as hell. Like it's, yes, you can put ice screws in it, but you're doing it because you've seen a picture of someone doing it overseas. It's not going to hold a fall. Like it is surface verglass kind of stuff. And you're kind of trying to put some trad in and it's scraping ice tools up rock, but it's, it's proper dangerous stuff. Like you can, you know, these, these are not two meter high things. Some of these things are 30, 40 meter high scraping up on ledges. And Jono and I spent like multiple years doing seasons of this winter, sketchy, sketchy stuff, mostly on Bogong. Um, so that alpine stuff was all a bit of practice. And I mm. sort of did, you know, winter ascents of Lord Gumtree, mm. horrible experience of that. That was all sort of training Sufferfest in, you know, the snow and the ice to to get ready for Baffin Island. And then, but, you know, I say that we organized and planned, but it really was my typical planning, which was no planning at all. So we had this objective, which is like, we want to go to Baffin Island, but we didn't actually ring anyone or talk to anyone who'd ever been there before. We didn't. The only thing we had was this magazine, like 
you know, the internet existed. I could have looked things up a lot more closely. I could have like messaged the rangers or something or someone and said, when, when should we go there? So we didn't do any of that. We just had this book from 10 years ago and we flew into Baffin Island, landed in Baffin Island in this little tiny town with, you know, a couple of hundred people and, you know, icebergs everywhere. Like the ocean is all frozen solid. We get out of the plane and there's this little like ranger station thing there. We walk in the ranger station and the guy just looks at us and goes, what are you guys doing here? And we're like, oh, we're going to climb like Mount Asgard. And the guy's like, no one, no one is here. Like, this is not the season to be here. Like, what are you doing here? Like, effectively, and we're like, what do you mean? He's like, this is like weird ice breakup season. Like, you can't get in, you can't get out. Like, there is literally no one in that area, like in the national park. There's no hikers, there's no hunters, there's no one there. And we went, oh, oh what do you mean? And he said, look, it hasn't quite started breaking up properly yet. I could probably get convince someone in town to skidoo you in as as far as they can up the fjord, but they will just dump you in the middle of the fjord and you're going to have to, you know, get to the land and like it, they they will not be able to get you onto the land with the skidoos. They'll just be able to get it to the point where the ice is falling apart. So, you know, with an hour's notice, he rustled up some local guy who got us on a skidoo with a little thing and it was like a terrifying like skidoo trip across and, and they, they just ride their skidoos across broken ice. Like they'll just be like ice and then it looks like ocean and they just drop into this ocean, which is half mushy snow and pops up the side and there's things floating around. And then at some point he just goes, whoa, no further, no further. And just throws all our bags out onto like an iceberg. Did you know where and you then, were at least? Or? Oh, look, we had a map. I'd seen a map somewhere like, you know, like, but it was, this was not the plan. Like the plan was apparently according to something I'd read, your skidoo could go all the way up the go, you know, get you 40 Ks up the valley. No, no, skidoo gets us like, you know, 10 or 15 Ks up the valley at yeah. most. And then we sort of just hopped across icebergs till we get onto the land. And that was the most amazing thing about the trip. I mean, the routes were really fun and crazy, but it was, we had the whole place to ourselves. Like there was no, we were there for six or seven weeks and it was only in the last week that we saw any other humans. Like it was a really, I think it's actually very hard to achieve that in the modern world. If you called for a rescue, no one's coming to get you, you know, like you're a hundred kilometers up a valley like they can't drive, there's no cars, they can't drive up there to get you. You're just going to be there by yourself. But you still got a fair bit done there. Yeah, you yeah like summited um, Mount Asgard. Mount Asgard and, yep. and Thor by some bizarre route that the guidebook, this crappy little guidebook had told us it was like A4 and blah, blah, blah. We really planned, okay, it's going to be this like, you know, you know, Mount Thor's, you know, so-called biggest cliff on earth or something. We aimed for the sort of scrabbly left-hand side because we didn't have a lot of equipment. But yeah, so we did this route up Thor, which ended up being having no aid on it at all. So we were totally like we had all those copper heads and all this like stuff. We're all ready. There's going to be A4 pitch on here somewhere. And we just kept freeing and just kept freeing and kept freeing and not particularly hard, like 5, 10, like grade 20 or something. Just kept going, kept going, going, kept going, 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 all the way to the top. It was like, oh, okay, well, apparently we've... But it was one of those things where it wasn't a particularly obvious line. You were just making it up. Every pitch you were like, oh, there's a corner over there and a crack there and... The, to the, the topo was um, not a topo at all. It was like a vague red line drawn with no pictures marked or anything sort of up the left side. So um, that was sort of successful. And then we tried a, a new route and someone had warned us in advance that when you go to Baffalon and you've kind of, because our aim was, oh, we wanted to do a new route, a new sort of aid route. And someone had told us, you know, in advance, the one thing you want to make sure you don't do when you're in Baffin Island is pick a new route to do on the north face. Unfortunately, the north face is a situation where it never, ever gets warm, ever, because it never gets some sun on it. It's just the same temperature all the time. 
and so that just proved to be um much more of a a battle of of wetness and cold and snow and ice and we were totally under game with a hand drill mm. no power drills and we had a fit of rudimentary collection of bolts which was i think i had sort of 10 dyna bolts and then 10 of these microscopic little um rivet things that i tested at home that it could hold like a 30 kilo haul bag um you know sort of it, it didn't and so our belays consisted of like one good bolt and one of these rivets joined together like we slept, spent nights in portal edges like two of us and the whole bag all hanging off one diner bolt and one little rivet thing i'd bought from bunnings that you could drill you know you i don't know maybe you drill uh I, I can't think of how far it would have been in there's one right there one of these little rivet things like this so you drill it and then you hammer it in about that far like a little rivet anyway they're okay and then we had to wrap and we ran out of gear so we had to wrap the whole route so we also wrapped off all this these little pathetic rivets and stuff down it but it was a fun it was a new route yeah Yeah, it was a totally new route and it was a really different game it was the weather actually really turned on us on that it actually rained a lot and we got a lot of water pouring down the cracks were in and saturated and getting really cold at night and like belaying that was like I remember the belayer wore all the clothes they had Plus both down jackets, like both the leader and the seconds down jackets, like you were, and you were still so cold, like it was just, you know, you were everything was encased in things, and you were the idea of free climbing was like not an option. Like whilst on Thor, we were totally free climbing, it was totally happy, like mm. hands that was mm. just like it was just you so beautifully yeah. cold. The idea of getting it, taking your gloves off, and putting your hands on the rock and trying to climb it was just like, yeah, no, this is never going to happen. Yeah, it, the whole of the Baffin Island trip very much reinforced. I probably wasn't much of a. I didn't really want to do this for the rest of my climbing life. Just a lot of mountaineering is a lot about sitting around in the cold, waiting for storms to clear, and you know, it's a lot of time and time is money and in that sense you paid so much money to be there and you sort of start dividing it by every day i'm like oh god this is you know mm. what am i doing here i've just spent all day sitting in a sleeping bag reading lord of the rings um for the fourth time because i think that was the only book we had and uh Think, thinking and, about all the routes you could have like yeah yeah, back yeah, at home. yeah exactly it's like oh imagine if it was warm you mentioned to me that you think it's probably over a thousand routes that you've developed uh, by now at least a thousand pitches. Yeah, I think it's probably getting around close to a thousand pitches because, you know, I think I may have done like six or seven hundred routes. Mm. But a lot of the things I've been doing recently have been multi pitch routes and things with sort of five pitches, six mm. pitches. And so that quickly, rapidly adds up um, when you start doing multi pitch routes. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it has been a sort of a you know, the word to use is obsession. Like it's, that's really what I live for with rock climbing. I don't particularly enjoy, like I love going overseas. And I, mm-hmm. Like when I'm overseas, I just love it. Like I don't have any interest in doing new, you know, I don't go to France or Red River Gorge mm. and go, hand me a drill. I want to find the next obscure route. Like mm. I just want to repeat routes and I'm loving it and loving mm. on siding and going to New Crag every day, you know, run through Spain. It's fantastic. But back in Australia, I've always, I don't know, I'm very obsessed with finding the latest thing and you know i just love sort of i love the exploration aspect of it which Mm. is going around and wondering what's around the next corner i mean that's like Mm. i really struggle i any cloud of crater to you know a developed crater that's already existed i'll go there and i'm like but what's like what's around the corner and you know i have to walk even if someone tells me it's it's rubbish or it's crap i'm like but i've got to see it for myself and you know and just thrashing through the bush looking for things like, you know, just yesterday I was thrashing around um, somewhere near um, railway cliffs 
to discover there was a couple of random like things I'd looked at in the distance. Oh, that's kind of, oh, that'll be okay. And I went over there, oh, God, someone's actually been here. It's not written up anywhere. Like there's some random ring bolts up this wall um, that look like they're about 10 years old. So I've got to work out whose that is. But anyway, it was a ride. It was a totally crap cliff anyway. So, um, But, I mean, I just love that sense of doing your roots. And I think it was a, someone calculated something like <laughs> I've done. Was it you that told me that? I told you, that yeah, you did, yeah. I've done a yeah. new route. A new route every... 10 days since you started climbing. That's insane. And that's every 10 days. And that's a route, not pitch as well. No, no, I I think that works out of pitch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, still. Yeah. yeah. You know. And I've got so many more to do. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, like, it's just, I just, I like, I'm always been a bit of a loner when it comes to, like, I'm really quite happy being out in the bush by myself bolting. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm not, like, I'm not a, I'm not a soloist in the sense I don't want to go out and solo routes by myself and, mm. and hate life, but I have no, like, you know, psychologically I have no issues. No, I, I love just being out by myself, wandering around the bush, mm. thrashing around, wrapping down things, you know, mm. looking at stuff, poking around, discovering stuff, whatever it is. Um, I mean, it's almost bushwalking half of it, but just the, the sort of the whole bit of, cliff crag development thing of lugging gear and encasing stuff it's kind of like mountaineering but in a safe kind of way or something you know it's a mm. similar concept where you're going in and leaving little caches of equipment and wrapping down and having a look at things and coming back day after day and um yeah i mean like it's kind of what i live for um it's always like the the endless search for the next big thing is just around the corner it might be the greatest thing i mean i don't know australia climbing is it is drying up in in great finds i think i don't think there is a lot of new routers out there well there's well weirdly there is this thing that i've noticed which is that people bolting new routes and even doing new trad routes are just getting older and older there's this mm. really really weird you know, the shift that's happening in the climbing world where new routes were once this thing that a lot of people did. Like I would say mm. in the 60s and 70s, like effectively there were so many routes mm. that when you went out climbing, lots of people did new routes. So if you mm. went, you know, oh, we're going out to Narrow Neck this weekend, the, you know, SRC club trip, and you didn't go out and repeat routes. You went out and everyone had a go of doing a new route because there were new mm. routes everywhere to do. And as I guess as it's slowly consolidating around Australia... Um, and the style of style of routes left to do are harder and harder to develop. And not I'm not talking about difficulty, but difficult access. So like, you know, wrapping, climb out things, or they need rungs, or it's a really long walk, or, you know, it's really overhung, so it's really hard to get in to do it, or it's, it's you know, chossy, so it needs a lot of, you know, hammering things off with, you know, gluing things together, whatever it is. This is all very Blue Mountain specific, but... um. It's, it's getting kind of harder and harder to just do a new route easily. Mm. And what I've noticed is that the people doing these new routes are the same people that were doing the new routes 20 years ago. They're just mm. older now. And there is no new generation coming through. There's no one out there. Occasionally you'll see someone who will go and do a new hard route. A sort of a young guy will go out and do, you know, Tom Halloran or someone will do a new route. Mm. But invariably it's probably at a crag that's already well and truly developed and mm. it may even be a route that had already been bolted or half bolted or looked at mm. by someone else and and Tom sort of grabbed the you know batten and and take it on through the next mm. generation but but they there's not sort of 20 year olds stumbling through the bush looking for the next big thing mm. um and that, that doesn't seem to exist and the same guys you know like 
really the same guys. I'm talking like, you know, yeah. the Mickles and Glenn Tempus, guys who were stumbling through the bush in 1970s are still some of the most active people out there doing new routes. Like those guys are out there, you know, looking for new routes and cleaning and bulging and stuff. They might not be doing the, the same grades that they were doing when they were the younger, but that's the guys. I mean, the main prolific developers up in the Blue Mountains, someone like Steve Grokovic and, and Meg, like they've been the pro most prolific people up here since the 1990s. I mean, they're mm. ticking around to, to you know, 30 years of bolting routes up in the Blue Mountains and there's not really other people coming coming after them that are younger and ready to re replace them. It's the same lot, all of them. I guess climbing is growing. It's growing fast. We're seeing a lot of new people coming into the outdoors. Um, that's starting to cause um, issues that are playing out across the country, one of those being access. I wanted to ask you, uh, what are your thoughts on the current state of... of access in Australia, access issues. I'm not actually sure that that's like a totally truthful statement in that mm -hmm. there is more, like there's probably more climbers, but I think it's it's literally the way park areas are managed that is changing. And, and that's changing rapidly in the sense that what we could get away with in the past, mm. um, we can't get away with anymore. And it's not even necessarily to do with particular incidents. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there definitely is more climbers and, we, you know, there's probably more profile of climbers out there. But I think parks management plans are sort of rapidly changing around us. And that's what climbers are having to integrate themselves into. We're only mm. one small part of changings of, of ownership of land. And things, I mean, things change in recent times. Things get made into national parks that were national parks, like somewhere like Bungonia Gorge. Bungonia Gorge wasn't a national park a couple of years ago, and now it's a national park. So it has a different, the way it's managed, it was, you know, previously a, you know, a recreation area or something. And so there's just a little mindset change in the way areas are being managed. And, and that's generally things sort of go up in the chain. So things generally might have been a state park or a piece of rubbish council land and state park or private land. And then that slowly gets turned into a national park and then world heritage mm -hmm. and, and land effectively gets a more stringent, controls put on it and more thought about it and you know and uh you know government bureaucracy you know puts more into it every time you know you know if it's it's a higher up of the environmental thing it's it's you know it's harder for climbers to be justifying what they're doing in these places mm. um i mean the grampians wasn't a national park till the 1980s i mean it was logged it was a logging area and mining and logging like it it's not like the grampians national park has been you know a piece of untouched you know wilderness i mean that that's a, just a silly statement to say anyway because if the local aboriginals were living there it's it's not i mean they actually take great offense when people refer to things as being untouched wilderness because australia wasn't you know like mm -hmm. before europeans came here the aboriginals were all through australia in these mm -hmm. national parks and they use fire burning and you know the environment actually looked quite different to what we now have as national parks. Actually one of the big changes is that if you, some of you read some of the really early journals about how, you know, for us scrabbling around in these sort of overgrown thickets of bush, actually it wasn't like that. They could walk. Like weirdly, they could sort of, you know, the Europeans when they first came to Australia, they could just sort of walk easily across these vast areas because they had been sort of routinely 
fire burnt and mm. sort of managed in that sense. And, and because now they've sort of been walled off with fences around them and just let go, it's all become very thick. And that's half the sort of bushfire issues too that we get in Australia is because areas now get sort of fenced off. And mm. anyway, but it's just, that's just the way the sort of land, you know, tenure changes. And there's certainly, you know, you know, in Australia, what we're now getting is um, effectively like native, native title and equivalent. I mean, I'm not really into the depths of it all, but it's that being built into the management of national parks. And that's a whole thing that we've never, as climbers, have never had to deal with um, until really, I'd say, in the last five years. It's suddenly sort of reared, reared its head and climbers are going to have to deal with it. Like, you know, we've only been flitting around these climbing areas for maybe, you know, at most 50 years, but many places, 20 years mm. or 30 years. Um, and it's pretty hard to justify um, rock climbing in a place that might have 20,000 years or 30,000 years of history in it. Um, I mean, it's pretty hard to, you know, justify bouldering all over that or climbing all over it or walking tracks into it. And so that's going to be the by far the biggest um, you know, access issues we're going to have in Australia will be, yeah, just negotiating our way through that new world of um, native title and, uh, you know, national parks effectively, which is, um, you know, it's it's less now about, um, you know, protecting the forest. I think a lot of those battles have been won in the sense of big environmental battles. Mm. Um, you know, we now do have an amazing collection of national parks in Australia, Um you know, really amazing places. And most of the climbing areas in Australia, you would say, are safe in the sense that they're not going to be bulldozed and turned into housing commissions. They're not going to open up a coal mine, you know, in the middle mm. of the Blue Mountains, an open-cut mine. They're not going to dam, you know... Well, okay, they are about to dam bits of the, the Blue Mountains. But, you know, generally those big kind of projects that would have decimated an entire, you know, ecosystem aren't, aren't happening anymore. Um, and so... You know, climbers are scrabbling around at the fringes of of problems, but we're not. You know, I do think that climbers are are still kind of on the right side of history. You know, climbers are appreciating nature, and at least will be positive. Like we go to nature, and we we like nature. We're going mm. to these places because we like the trees and the waterfall and the rock, mm. and we don't like an open cut mine there or mm. you know a car park. Like we want to you know like we might not be perfect citizens and the you know but we're still appreciating the places and that's why we go to these these places um yes i think you know like we can i think we can work with land managers but it is a bit of a struggle it is it is you know we aren't definitely you know their their golden child when Mm. it comes to outdoor use um and uh, yeah, and I think we probably will have to real realistically, you know, suck up crag closures. Like it's, it happens in other places around the world, and um, it's probably something that's inevitable for certain places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think climbers are generally pretty damn ignorant of the history in the places mm-hmm. that they climb at, and I'm not talking like you know indigenous history, just all history. Like mm-hmm. you, you know, you just tell climbers about oh this place was once a you know, there was once a coal mine here or this was forestry and most climbers are like, oh, really? Um, I think it's worth climbers just learning a bit about the places they they visit a bit more so they get a bit of a bigger understanding, especially about, you know, even species that lives in these places, plants and animals that, that may be totally endemic to where you are and maybe only a few of these left and, mm. you know, don't think, you know, there's a million of these plants. Um, 
mm. just everywhere in Australia? No, there'll probably be quite specific um, plants and animals to where you are actually climbing. Um, yeah. We are in um, the Blue Mountains right now. You've lived in Sydney. You've lived in Brisbane, Melbourne. Am I missing any here or...? No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. it. So you've experienced climbing internationally and, and a lot here locally. I'd like to kind of get your thoughts and and observations, I guess, on the different areas in Australia and yeah. how you kind of like see the, the maybe the similarities between some of them and kind of the distinctions, like what makes like uh, maybe Victorian climbing or, or or climbing in Brisbane unique in, yeah. in contrast to the so others. I mean I've and I and I keep returning to these places too. That's yeah. interesting. So I've seen these scenes evolve, and Queensland's mm. definitely a really interesting one. I found Queensland when I started very tribey and quite. I guess male ego driven that was all about being, you know, bold and hard and, and secret crags and stuff like that. And it's, it's almost the opposite now. Like I love going back to Queensland because everyone, it's like a small enough climbing community, but it's still lots of climbers, but everyone is friends with everyone. It's just like, you just go to the crag and everyone's so lovely and they invite you up to the, oh, come to, come climbing tomorrow here and you go there and everyone there is really lovely. And I just, I find Queen's just like this little weird like bubble of bubble of fun or something I find there. And it just like, it seems like there's nothing. It's like the old grumpy generation doesn't exist there or something. I don't know what it is, but it literally, everyone just seems to get along and things happen and it's, and, and the older climbers are happily climbing with the younger. I don't know. It's a really... And and Queensland, I mean, look, Queensland is very probably quite sport focused, apart from Frog Buttress, which is obviously very trad focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and Queensland has a well. I mean, I'm very much referring to Brisbane here. I've always got to say it's not Queensland because there's a lot of climbers up in sort of the North Queensland and stuff as well, and they have a quite interesting scene up there as well. But yeah, so Brisbane, I just find it's and it's every all the crags are very close it's 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 funny like if you drive an you know an hour and a half that's woo that's a big drive if you're a queenslander um and like i guess they're all sort of little smaller crags not big areas no one really camps in queensland it's this funny little social scene of sort of coffee and cake and half day climbing a lot of it too like it's not a it's not i wouldn't call it terribly serious a lot of queensland climbing like i find it's all a bit it's really fun. I love going out there. It's like a really fun... But I go up there and I know I'm not going to get really scared. I'm not going to get massively sandbagged mm. by someone. Um, I don't know. Everyone seems quite genuine in that sense. And then, like, you know, in Melbourne, I find... I mean, the the, sorry, the, the Victorian kind of Melbourne and Rapley's Grampians kind of scene. It's I loved living there. And one of the great things I loved, which I really miss, is the camping all weekend... Um, it's tribal, but not tribal in a bad way. And tribal in you have your posse of friends, and you spend so much time with those people because you, you know, you go there all weekend with them. So you, you're leaving on Friday night. You're in a four-hour tri- drive with them. Oh, out the mouth, chat, 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 chat. You're gonna have dinner with them that night. Chat, chat. You get there, get to the crag, wake up in the morning. You're camping. You're there. You have breakfast with all your all your mates and you chat about what you're doing. You go out climbing all day with them, and you do go all day because there's nothing else to do. You can't pop down to the cafe and you know have a cake at two o'clock in the afternoon and then pop to another crag. No, you you will be you know at, up at the cliff all day, and then the end of the day, blah blah, and around the campfire, you might be lots of other people there that you know, and you you know you. And, and that big posse, you do it all, you drive it home, and then during the week, you then go bouldering with the same lot, and everyone goes out to dinner after bouldering with the same lot, and it's this really 
kind of very fixed sort of community thing where I, I you know it's really it's a really good scene I, like my still my closest friends are my melbourne friends um because of those moments you did everything with them all the time like they were sort of like your flatmates you didn't flatmate with but you did really because you spent three nights of the week with them like you know every every year um i mean every week so uh yeah and, and victoria's a little bit <laughs> like victoria's a funny scene where it's, there's not a lot of new activity happening in victoria it's sort of a funny stagnant situation where most of the sort of the, you know, the new hard routes get done by outsiders, like either, you know, people from overseas or New South Wales climbers. There's not actually a lot, you know, there's a handful of people, you know, developing new routes. And it really is a, you know, five people really that is doing any sort of new route development in somewhere like the Grampians, which which I find particularly weird when this whole thing blew up about new crag development in the Grampians, because it's... There's actually not a lot happening. Like it's pretty stagnant. The the Victorian climbing scene in that sense. I mean, bouldering is a different story. There's obviously quite a lot of bouldering development happening. Um, and then I find, <laughs> yeah, New South Wales an interesting game. This the Sydney scene. It, there's just a lot of climbers. I'd I'd love to know the facts and figures. Like that, there is so many climbers in Sydney that you know you can go climbing every day of the week out there and meet a new. Sydney climber you've me never met before. You know, I've been climbing for five years. Wow, I've never come across you before. You know, like whilst that seems quite hard to achieve in Victoria, like you generally kind of know the the, the crowd. Um, and I don't, I guess just a big, it's a big scene in New South Wales. Yeah. And, and again, lacking a, I mean, there's definitely like camping at like Mount York, but eh, that's sort of, it's not terribly big and not terribly, you know, great really. Um and so New South Wales is much more fractured. There's definitely sort of, mm. you know, t groups that hang out with their own thing and do their own. That the now a lot. They only really climb at Nowra, even though they live in Sydney. And then there's the Bloom. And like, uh, it's definitely much more fragmented climbing scene. And there's obviously a lot of really strong climbers in New South Wales for whatever reason. I mean, there's a lot of hard routes, I guess. Sport climbing is very, very entrenched in in. New South Wales, whilst obviously, and that's because of the rock type. Obviously, in Victoria, there's a lot of, you know, bumbly trad climbers. I mean, it's awesome. Like, why wouldn't you be a bumbly trad climber when you've got a Rapalese and the Grampians? I mean, it's just amazing places for having the time of your life on grade 15s on trad. Like, whilst you've run out pretty quickly of grade 15s on trad in New South Wales that are actually not total piles of choice. Mm -hmm. And, and, that's the different scene in New South Wales. I think it's 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 almost that New South Wales like it's a it's a tougher place to live. Everyone's a bit harder and grumpier and angrier and moneyer and you know that's kind of what New South Wales is a bit like. It's everyone's a bit I don't know leaner and fightier. They all want the hard grades and they want to look the best and they you know it's definitely that happens a lot more in New South Wales than than the other scenes. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, but look, I New South Wales is has amazing climbing, and the variety up here is what I love about Sydney. I mean, there, mm. there's got to be you'd struggle to find a city on earth that's got you know. If you live in Sydney, mm. you can drive one and a half hours in the Blue Mountains. You've got thousands and thousands of sandstone routes. Then you you know in Sydney itself, you've got thousands of short you know twenty meter high sandstone routes and amazing world class bouldering. You drive north to Newcastle, um, you've got granite, you know granite sea cliffs. You drive you know. Five or six hours in Warramunga was huge, humongous, multi-pitch, you know, 
volcanic trad stuff. You go south one and a half hours, you've got all of Nara and you know some of the best sea cliffs around, Point Perp. The drive two hours, it's only two hours, and you've got Bung- Bungonia Gorge, it's 300 meter high limestone. Um, you know, you drive four hours and you're in all Canberra granite. I mean, like the variety of climbing that you have as a New South Wales climber and you know, big, proper, good, hard routes mm. is amazing. Like it's, mm. you, there is nowhere in the world that has that kind of mix of rock types and variety and all year climbing. That's the other beauty about living in New South Wales. When you're overseas, you quickly discover, oh yeah, like North America, like they just physic- physically can't climb for three or four months of the year. It's just too cold. Like you, mm. it's not like, oh, it's a bit cold. My fingers are, little... no, no, it's, you know, it's negative 20 cold. Like it's, you can't, you know, you physically, there's no way you can go rock climbing. Um, and whilst New South Wales, like, oh, I'm whining. It's like four degrees or five degrees in the dead of winter at, you know, the top of the Blue Mountains. When, oh yeah, it could just be an hour and it would have been 15 and fine. You know, like, so you just have this all year, all round climbing thing. I mean, that's what makes, the Australian climbing scene quite unique compared to a lot of places around the world is the way that we can climb all year round. Mm. And really, even in Queensland, you know, you can whine that it's hot and stuff, but really, go mm. climb it, slider in the shade, mm. you know, early in the morning, late in the afternoon, that's fine. It's 20 degrees. It's beautiful. Like, it, it, there's nothing really stopping you. So, I mean, as it's a great, really great place to, to live. Mm. I mean, we don't necessarily have the best, longest, hardest routes. And we obviously lack totally mountaineering kind of big objectives in that sense. We don't have an L cap kind of, you know, we don't have mm. 35 pitches to challenge ourselves on something. But, um, yeah, we have our own charms and mm. and volcanic climbing in Australia in the sense of funny, rhyolite stuff is very, especially Glasshouse Mountains, the Warren Bungles, Capitar, um, those kind of crags are very unique to Australia. You only have to go overseas to discover that it doesn't exist. Like there's no crags like that in Europe mm. or even North America. Like they just, that's kind of weird domey stuff. There's stuff like that in Africa, yeah. but that's obviously not very easy to get to. So it's a, mm. so yeah, we have our own charms and sea cliffs mm. in Australia, Tasmania and, you know, and Point Perp, they are the best sea cliff climbing in the world. Like you, quickly discover when you go overseas North America prime example there is no sea cliffs there at all like mm. they don't have sea cliffs for all their wonderful coastline they have no nothing and we have sea cliffs everywhere like we don't have to go far to get amazing sea cliffs and in Tasmania well you got 200 meter high straight into the ocean spectacular stacks and granite mm. and uh, like it's you know extraordinary extraordinary places and and I always wonder when I talk to people who who travel overseas, oh, I went to Thailand, or I went to you know, Spain, I went to France, I went to the US. And then you say, have you been to Tasmania? No. Why not? It's like, you know, it's like a one-hour flight away. You could be like in these amazing places that are like, that without, without all the admin that you're going to have going overseas and spending vastly less money and, and uh, you know, appreciate what you've actually got right here because it is pretty extraordinary in Australia. That's it. I hope you enjoyed hearing Neil's stories. Thanks to Neil and his wife, Kathy, for putting me up in the Blue Mountains while I was there. Thanks to everyone out there for all the positive feedback on the first podcast, and thanks for sharing it around online. As you may know, we've had crag closures here in the Grampians in Victoria in the past week. Access issues are only increasing in Australia, and the organisations doing the work to keep them open need our support. 
I'd encourage you to go and join or donate to your peak state climbing bodies. I've included a few links at thelayback.com to help. Now, wherever you're headed to climb today, may the approach seem shorter and flatter than what it is, and may you pull the right size pro from your harness each and every time. To take us out, here's a little slow motion clip I found on Neil's website from the early 2000s where he climbs strike the first blow in the Grampians. He didn't change the sound on the actual film clip, and so the result is like a record being played in slow motion. It's kind of a little bit scary, but also hilarious. I hope you enjoy it, and you can also find it on YouTube in all its pixelated glory, along with the podcast. Ah.